welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, uh, as Janice mentioned, we are on week eight of spiritual practices. This is uh, week eight of uh, the planned nine. We might do more than that. We yes. don't know, you know, so calm down. And so <laughs> uh, we might do uh, more than that. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But uh, yes, this is week eight. I'm excited to bring you God's word today. Are you excited to hear it? Yeah. Thank you for rousing enthusiasm. Okay, well, let's pray before we begin, shall we? Awesome. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of coming together. Lord, we thank you for your presence that's here with us. Lord, indeed, what a joy and privilege it is to call you friend. Lord, we thank you that you have called us friend, that you uh, have made every provision in heaven and on earth for us to draw near to you. Lord, we thank you for this great grace, this great privilege of coming into your presence, of leaning on you, of hearing your voice. Lord, we do not take it lightly. Lord, we understand that this is only made possible because of the work of Calvary. So God, we remember all that you have accomplished for us, that you have made the way for us to enter in. And so today we enter in with great gratitude in our hearts, but also with great joy in our spirits. Lord, we thank you that we get to love you, we get to experience you, we get to know you. And God, we thank you for your precious word that's been given to your church. God, we ask even as we glean from scripture and hear your voice today, Lord, that our hearts will be ready to receive, our hearts will be transformed indeed by your Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that we are not transformed by the eloquence of preaching or the depth of research, but we are transformed by your very Spirit. So Spirit of God, we invite you to come rule and reign, come invade this place, come minister to our hearts. We open our whole being to you today. Come and rule and reign, Lord Jesus. Come and have your way. We're expectant for all that you're going to do in and through us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Ready? Stretching? Well, uh, uh, a while ago, I reconnected with an old friend. Um, this old friend, I've never, I haven't met him in, uh, in quite a few years, actually. And so I was really excited to catch up with an old friend. You know, as you get older in life, you have old friends. And so I have friends from a long, old ago. And so I was very excited to reconnect with an old friend. You know, we uh, got connected on the Facebook. And so, uh, uh, of course, we made plans to reconnect after some many years. And so, you know, uh, I, I hung out with him, we had uh, lunch together, and uh, we began to, to converse, we began to chat. And um, it was a really uh, interesting lunch meeting, because some 20 minutes in, we ran out of things to talk about. And mind you, you know, we have not met for a number of years. And so you would figure that there's so much to catch each other up on, right? You know, figure like you can talk about so many things, but... Some 20 minutes in, we hit like that awkward, loud kind of a thing, you know, when the conversation kind of like dips and then you like twiddle your thumbs and that's when you feel tempted to pull out your phone and like, and then you start talking about the weather, you start like, hey, when, how was that movie, you know, that came out like some two months ago, wasn't that great, you know, and so you start having all these like pleasantries and awkward conversations and this is a guy that I've not met in a number of years. Now, the first 20 minutes of the conversation kind of goes like this, and I'm sure many of you can relate. You know, uh, we were talking about a bunch of stuff, and I'll, he was like, hey, you know, I actually uh, am in a new job. And I was like, yeah, you know, I saw 
on uh, Facebook and I saw on your LinkedIn. I actually looked you up before you came to see whether you're legit these days. But, uh, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then he was like, yeah, you know, I, I've been dating a girl recently. He was like, yeah, I saw on your, your Facebook. And then he's like, oh, okay. Then uh, he was like, hey, you know, I heard. I, uh, I was like, oh, actually, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm pastoring a church now. Oh, yeah, I saw on your Insta story. I saw on Instagram. And it, the whole conversation, all 20 minutes, was just like, yeah, I saw. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, I saw. And how many of you can relate with something like that? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah I saw. I saw already. Yeah. Even though some of y'all can relate, cannot relate or profess not relate, how many of y'all actually like, look up a person on social media before you meet them? Yeah, so you can like feel some conversation topics in. None of y'all? Just me? Just Andre? Andre and his dysfunction. As usual, Andre is the most dysfunctional person in this church. Why am I leading it in the first place? Anyway, so it, it just went back and forth, back and forth. And you know, it was almost like his whole life, my whole life, it's all on social media. And like whatever information he wants from me, he can just very well just Google Andre Josiah, Andre Tan, and then he'll find everything. These days, uh, I'm sure you can agree with me, almost every aspect of our lives are put on display, on social media, where there's almost nothing left to be discovered. We're beginning to see the decline or the slow eventual death of like real solid conversation. And don't get me wrong, I think that media is great. I think that these like networking platforms are really great. I feel like I'm up to date with like almost all my friends and what they are up to in life. I feel this like kind of like a sense of connection, but at the same time, I'm sure you can agree with me, the impetus to like pick up the phone, call a friend like, hey, you know, what have you been up to lately, or how are you doing, or what's new in life, that kind of conversation almost never happens, because, you know, if I want to find out what a person is doing, I just go on their Facebook, I just go on their social media, and then everything is all there, right? Will you agree with me in saying that we live in an age of shareability, right? There is almost a subtle societal expectation for us to share our whole lives, to make public our entire lives, what we're doing, what we're up to, our thoughts and opinions about blah, blah, blah. Everything is out there. In the modern age, we're enamored with this concept of transparency. When you do a good deed, you post. When you have a good day, you post. When you have some profound spiritual revelation, you have to like put it on this story so that everyone can see how profound and how awesome you are and all that good stuff. I'm guilty of that all the time. Because, you know, as the age of saying goes, sharing is caring, right? You know? Today, you know, we're we are meant to be open, vulnerable, on, and on some level, exposed even. Are you following me? Yes? Come on, track with me. I'm sure I'll get this done by 12 p.m. Can we do it? Yes, we can. Okay. <laughs> we're meant to be open, vulnerable. Exposed even. That was the biggest response I ever get this sermon. <laughs> I, I read this recently that uh, an, uh, an atheist, a CrossFit athlete, and a vegan all walked into a bar. And the only reason I know is because they told everyone in two minutes. Ha ha ha. I thought, I thought that was quite funny. Maybe because we do have atheists and vegan here. We can see this really clearly in our current cultural moment, right? Where being seen and celebrated for who you are, what you do, and what you've contributed to the world is one of the highest values for the individual. And because of a hyper-public culture, many of us painstakingly curate a life on social media, on reality, for the sake of the admiration of others. 
we long, we desire, we crave the approval of other people. In this age of shareability where it's almost like we have to put our lives on display, we curate it like museum pieces, putting in elements, putting in aspects of our lives, tweaking our schedules, inserting things that we do because we know that this will draw the admiration and approval of other people. In an age of shareability, the temptation to crave, to long for the approval of others is stronger than it ever has been. Tony Rank, in uh, his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. Now, I highly, <laughs> highly, highly recommend this book. You know I've been talking about the phone a lot. Just the Androids. Apple stuff is all good. But <laughs> he says this in his book, the bars of social approval has conditioned us to feed on regular microbursts of validation given by every like, favorite, retweet, or link. This new psycho, uh, physiological conditioning means that our lives become more dependent on the moment-by-moment approval of others. Someone took a picture. It's all on the city app. Just go on Apple Store, go on the city app, screenshot. It's all there. Don't worry. Don't worry, man. Moment-by-moment approval of others. Was it you? Or it was you? Do, you have the, do you have the app? Last line, last line. Come on, follow me. We need the antidote of new affirmation from our friends to keep convincing ourselves that our lives are meaningful. This is the current cultural climate. This is what we are living in. This is the pull, the lure, the temptation of our world. Depending on your poison of choice, it could be Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or LinkedIn, whatever platform we are on, one of the first checkpoints is the notification tab. Has anyone liked something of mine? Have I been retweeted? Have I been, you know, retweet is such a precious commodity these days. That means that you are so, so smart that it commands another person to reshare. Man, the elusive retweet. It is addictive. It is so addictive, right? And have you ever stopped to wonder why? That little rush you get when your post gets more likes than normal, there's a reason for that rush, and that is the neurochemical dopamine. Dopamine is a chemical produced by our brains that plays a starring role in motivating behavior. It gets released when we take a bite of delicious food, when we have sex, when we exercise, and importantly, when we have successful social interactions. In an evolutionary context, it rewards us for beneficial behaviors and motivates us to repeat them. For every thumbs up or heart we get, a little psychological high through a shot of dopamine. The more likes, the more shots. The more shots we have, the more shots we want. And we are in a loop. Shots, shots, shots. Scientists used to think dopamine was responsible for pleasure in the brain. But now we know that rather than creating pleasure, it actually makes us seek it. How many of you still want to go into Facebook after this? A recent study on the effect of social media likes have on teenagers' brains likened it to winning money or eating chocolate. We share our thoughts and interests primarily because we want to stay connected with the people we care about, but increasingly so also because we want to feel good through positive affirmation, applause, and approval. The more likes, the more dopamine, the better we feel. I read an article recently uh, from the New Statesman. That, that wrote about social media likes and our current cultural climate, it says this, likes are always an indicator of social standing. And my age says an anonymous 17-year-old respondent, as someone who gets anxious and occasionally struggles with self-esteem, the amount of likes on my post can be both hugely uplifting, 
or depressing. How many of you can relate to that? There's even a company today called Dopamine Labs that specializes in making apps in their language more addictive. And more addictive is a fair way of putting it, given that dopamine hits in the brain are also a key mechanism for addiction to alcohol, drugs, gambling, and the like. As a society, we are increasingly addicted to, now use this word on purpose, the drug of applause, approval, and affirmation. We have become addicted as a culture. It is the easiest it ever has been to compare, but also to curate for oneself a life for someone else's admiration. We live in a world today where everyone wants to, where we want everyone to see and to know our best. It feels good to inform others of how cool our life is, how blessed we are, or what great things we've contributed, or even how pious and devoted we are as Christians. Jonathan Pennington has this to say. He says, The desire to have others reward one with praise for piety is a powerful drug. It is easy enough to perform outward actions to get the next fix of this praise from others' drugs. Praise for piety. We then live into false versions of ourselves, slaves to what others think about us, our lives. The question we are then left with is this. Is this the way we ought to live? And is this the life that we want to live? And in Jesus, we find a better way in the middle of our current cultural climate. And we find his way in Matthew chapter 6. He says this in Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Into a cultural climate of approval, addiction, the drug of applause, the temptation to live a false, well-curated life, Jesus proposes a radical alternative, one where we live life for the audience of one, not living for the approval of others, but the joy of the Father, and we do so by living a life of secrecy. For week eight of spiritual practices, I'd like to speak to you on the practice of secrecy. I thought I did a good job so far, but <laughs> clearly not so good. Hey, hey, hey. Secrecy, secrecy. Charlotte, I... <laughs> I think I need to work on myself because you'll find the irony of this moment in a bit. But now this practice, okay, we talked about a bunch of practices. Most of you are really well familiar with a bunch of them, yeah? Maybe a couple new ones like Sabbath, solitude, but scripture, praying, you got it down, you got it unlocked. But this thing of secrecy, you know, this is a new one for some of you, but this theme of secrecy, this spiritual practice actually appears multiple times in the gospel, and it's a very much a big part of Jesus' life, and it ought to be a part of your life and my life too. 
It's not talked about often, but most teachers on discipleship will agree that this practice undergirds, is the foundation of all the spiritual disciplines. Secrecy. And it's extremely vital in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Dallas Willard has this to say. Now, Dallas Willard will appear often because he is awesome. But he says this, Few things are more important in stabilizing our walk of faith than this discipline. In the practice of secrecy, we experience a continuing relationship with God, independent of the opinions of others. Thomas Kempis comments on the great tranquility of heart. Now, how many of you want that? The great tranquility of heart that comes to those who rise above praisings and blamings. My man. Now, Singaporeans, you will agree with me in saying this, are some of the most demanding people on planet Earth. We are, right? We demand like good service. It has to be good. We demand like it has to be cheap. And it also has to be good. <laughs> it also has to be like served with a smile. You need like the trifecta in order to live a good life. We demand good service, but also efficiency and recognition, right? We demand recognition. And in many ways, this spiritual practice of secrecy goes against our cultural grain. It goes against the cultural grain of Singaporean life. The practice of secrecy. Now, if you study the life of Jesus, you will see the practice of secrecy having a secret place, a repeated theme in Jesus' life. In the gospel where Jesus is praying, can we have my next slide up? You'll find that he is always, almost, always, almost always alone. Right? In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, when Jesus entered the towns, he often tried to keep it a secret that he was there. Mark chapter 7, verse 24, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Man. <clears throat> and uh, the last one, Mark chapter 1, verse 44, when Jesus healed people, he often told them to keep it a secret. Now, he, he says this to a man that he was just healed, and oftentimes they just don't listen to him, right? They go and tell the whole world. And Jesus practiced secrecy. It was one of the core themes of his life. He called himself the son of man, which although it was a messianic term, it was a lot more humble than trumpeting to the whole world that he was the son of God. Peter was the first to confess that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, but then Jesus told him not to tell anyone yet. Jesus showed people his divinity in personal, transformational ways and let them come to their own realization that he was God incarnate, that he was indeed their Lord and Savior. Now, it's out of Jesus' teaching and life that we get the practice of secrecy. Now, what does this discipline, this practice, actually look like. Now, when I say secrecy, some of you might go like, I'm just going to have like my hand up on Montana life or like secrecy. Sorry, just being, trying to be culturally relevant. But <laughs> secrecy, like I, by that, I don't mean like you curate this like life of sin that no one else knows about or you suffer in silence or you have like all these needs, all these like problems you're facing in life, but you keep it all secret. No one knows anything about it. That is the practice of secrecy. Wrong. I will explain to you what this practice of secrecy is. Now, it's defined a bunch of ways, but here are three definitions. Uh, one by A.A. Calhoun. She says this, to follow the simple and often hidden way of Christ. Keith Jury writes, the discipline of secrecy is abstaining from taking credit for the good deeds we do. When we practice secrecy, we arrange to do good things in such a way that others can't even find out who did them. 
And the last one, now this person practices secrecy really well because he doesn't even credit himself for the quote. <laughs> Anonymous. He got it down, man. Keeping things from common knowledge or view, giving up credit or praise, choosing not to let our good deeds and qualities be known to others. This goes against our current cultural climate where we are addicted to the approval, the applause, the affirmation of others. But Jesus offers a radical alternative where we cease to be slaves to someone else's opinion and we rise above praisings and blamings by adopting a life of secrecy. Are you with me? And a good way to look at it is serving God in the opposite way of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus' way of secrecy was a starking contrast to the way the Pharisees lived their life. They had long flowing garments. They, had to do, they blew a trumpet wherever the Pharisees, they entered into a room. Uh, they demanded to be called rabbi. They were seen. They were known. They were flamboyant even. But Jesus, in his way, in his life of secrecy, he lived it contrary. It was almost like a contrast to the way the Pharisees conducted themselves. Now, do you know what Jesus said about the Pharisees? I bet you don't. Matthew chapter 23. I'm so sorry. That was uncalled for. Jesus says this. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra white prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra long tassels. Now, if I ever do that, just smack me in the head. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi or teacher. Similarly for us today, our culture's way of self-promotion is so inbred in us. Do we agree on that? That we normally don't even notice it or think of it as taking the focus off of Jesus and placing it on ourselves. In our world today, we are conditioned to draw attention to ourselves. We are literally curating pages online for our fans or followers. The discipline of secrecy calls us to do our service, good works for Christ in ways that draw attention to Him and away from ourselves. Now we're going to look uh, at Matthew chapter 6 again and we're just going to like break down the verses as they go. Now uh, I'm just going to skip forward to... Uh, no, no, yeah, this one. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We're going to skip down to verse 16. Verse 16 says this, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil homemade, good-look gel, whatever have you, on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, that's a chunk of scripture. But uh, let's look at the first slide, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, move on ahead. Yeah, be careful not to practice your righteousness 
in front of others. Now, the word righteousness actually translates in multiple ways in Scripture, but that particular uh, uh, occasion uh, it actually refers more uh, to right relationships as well as to right uh, as opposed to right standing. And this is right relationships with God, with other people, and with our world, the needy, the lost, the broken, the destitute. And a number of scholars will actually translate that work to good works. Be careful not to practice your good works in front of others to be seen by them. Now, Jesus, in that, that whole chunk of passage of Scripture that we just read, read, identifies three areas where the Pharisees were performing, were doing on purpose to gain the applause of other people. He identified three areas, and they were the areas of praying, fasting, and giving to the poor. Now, Jesus identifies these three areas, not because that all of good works, the summation of good works is limited to the three, praying, fasting, and giving to the poor. But actually in that day, in the Jewish community, these were the pillars of uh, the Jewish faith, of the Jewish community. These were uh, pillars in your life that you would erect if you desired to be a moral, upright, righteous person. You would pray, you would fast, and you would give to the poor. Now, the first area that Jesus addresses was giving to the needy. In that day, okay, there was, they didn't do the tithe and stuff like that, there was like a box in the temple uh, that they were put in public, and this box uh, was meant to collect funds that would go to uh, the destitute of people who were needy. And uh, some people, in giving uh, to that uh, donation box, uh, were making sure that they would donate, or only donate, when uh, there were a lot of people in the area where the temple courts were full and they would go to the box. Now, this box was traditionally made of a ram's horn. And so when they chuck their denarii, their coins inside, it would make a loud, loud uh, plung sound. You can imagine like, plung, plung. And so you can imagine like some of the people are like, you know what, I'm just going to wait till like the temple courts are full of people. I'm going to walk up, you know, such, such, and then take my denarii and I'm going to put it one at a time. So like, plong. Plong, maybe they take a few step backs and like Kobe it. Plong, plong, plong. So that everyone would know that I'm giving and how generous and how righteous and how awesome of a person I actually am. Now there's a verse uh, further down that goes, uh, when you give, don't do it so that others will notice you doing so. Uh, don't let your um, left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now this verse trips me up all the time because, you know, it's like, okay, I'm supposed to, make myself not think about giving. But you know the way it works, right? When you try to make yourself think about not thinking about something, you actually end up thinking about it. Like, don't think about a purple kangaroo. How many of you have a purple kangaroo in your head now, hopping around? Right? You, the more you don't think about something or try to force yourself not think about something, the more you actually think about it. And so this verse kind of trips me up. And so we have to look to my man, Dallas Willard, to explain to us what this verse actually means. He says this, the kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God, that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As for example, when driving one's own car or speaking one's native language, what they do, they do, naturally or often automatically, simply because of what they are pervasively and internally. These are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret, no matter who is watching for they are absorbed in the love of God and of those around them. They hardly notice their own deed and rarely remember it. To sum it all up, the end goal for your life and mine is to grow to be the kind of people who do Jesus-y things without thinking of it, 
much less thinking much of it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the second area Jesus brings up is uh, on the issue of prayer. Now, in the Jewish context, you were required to pray three times a day, once in the morning, once in midday, and once before you slept. Three fixed time prayers, in the morning, in the middle of the day, and before you sleep. Now, the New, uh, New Testament commentator notes about this verse that prayer was not normally practiced at the street corners, but one who strictly observed the afternoon hour of prayer could deliberately time his movements to bring him to the most public place at the appropriate time. Like you go to Orchard Road, they say, like, oh yeah, it's time to pray. Okay, Lord, I love you. you know? And people are like, whoa, this guy is so righteous, so holy, so awesome. So weird. But and the last area that Jesus brings up is on the area of fasting. Now the Jewish community were required to fast once a year on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Come on, man. The Pharisees, however, fasted twice a week. Now Jesus is not saying that fasting or fasting excessively is a wrong thing. But the way that they were doing it made them hypocrites. They would uh, you know, appear sullen on purpose, you know, they would take ash ashes and like contour their face, contour, contour, contour to make sharp. See, I know makeup. <laughs> and they'll take, no, it's a, it's a real uh, thing, you know, most historians would, would actually note that they would take ashes and they would like dirty up their face, they would dirty up their hair, they'll put uh, hoods on on purpose so people wouldn't be able to see their faces. they look sullen, they'll look broken, they'll look like malnourished and they would gain sympathy but also admiration from all the people. Now, the emphasis in all that Jesus is saying is that whatever good works you are to do, do it in secret. Why? Because doing it in public will only gain you humans, man's approval, and not God's approval. And now, this is not indicative of God's punishment or judgment on you. But when you choose human approval over God's approval, that is what you're literally doing. You are favoring one over the other. And the Bible tells us that when you choose one over the other, that is your reward. You are paid in full. It is not a judgment or indictment on you, but you have already received your payment. Humans, man's approval. It is all that they will receive, says the scriptures. It will be better to translate it as they have received their payment in full. Now the word there in Greek is the word apostian, which was the technical business and commercial word for receiving one's payment in full. Now, I can't think of a better, better spiritual discipline to train you to have an eternal perspective like secrecy. It is saying no to lesser temporal earthbound rewards in favor of the Father's delight, joy, and reward that comes when we arrive on eternity's shore. Secrecy does that is to favor God's eternal joy and delight over lesser earthbound temporal rewards. Are you with me? Now in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is setting up you know, two contrasting ideas. Even though you are doing this good, righteous thing, how many of you agree? Fasting is good, yes? Praying is good, yes? Giving to a knee is good, yes? Good, 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 good. All good things. But when you do this righteous deed, okay, and... If you do it okay, with um, an ulterior motive where it is not um, 
really your main goal. Like you're not doing the deed just for the deed's sake, but you're doing it to appear right, to appear holy in front of others. There's an ulterior motive. That is an issue. No matter how much good works you do, if the motivation that uh, gives you the drive, the impetus to do such good deeds is not right, that is an issue. Jesus is not just after your behavior. He's not just after what you do. He's after your heart's posture, your motivation. Now, that's what Jesus is going after. Now, in this teaching, Jesus is also acknowledging the very real lure and temptation toward the drug of applause. And he's also telling us that we can be free from this temptation by going into secrecy, the secret place. Now, um, I remember a time where, uh, you know, I read this verse with a friend of mine, and then, you know, we were doing a Bible study together, and they were like, man, you know, we need to do, like, secret Jesus-y things. And so we came out of this, like, club called, like, Gospel Ninjas, you know, I was, like, 22. And so I was like, we are, like, Gospel Ninjas. We're going to, like, hey, hey, hey. We're going to, like, be in the shadows, and we're going to, like, do awesome Jesus-y things. And so we went around, we, like, put $20 in, like, people's Bibles, you know, we would... Like, go do good deeds. We'll buy a coffees and put it in people's chairs. And so there was once uh, we were in a restaurant. And so we were, we were having a meal. And this was like one of the nicer restaurants uh, in Reading. There's only one. And so we were there eating and, and fellowshipping. And then we saw, um, we saw the man, Bill Johnson, uh, having a, a lunch with a few friends. And so you know what? We were like, man, this is a great opportunity to do that. GC thing. And so we decided like, you know what? We're just going to like pay for his meal. We're just going to like ask for his check. And so we, we got his check and uh, to our joy slash horror, we're like, whoa, this is a lot of money. And Bill is famous for like tipping a lot. Like he will tip like 40-50%. And so we're like, you know, if we don't tip that amount, then the waiter actually lose out on like the tip. And so we have to tip on like a Bill Johnson level. And so we're like, okay, we're just going to tip. Uh, and so we're like, oh, okay, so broke, so broke. But we're like, man, we are, we are gospel ninjas, yo, and our reward is in heaven. And so uh, we wrote a note that says, like, you have been ninja. I know, we were children. So, like, you have been ninja. And so uh, we were sitting uh, at a table, and uh, he, the waiter came over. He's like, oh, your bill has actually been paid for. And they, they gave him a note, like, you have been ninja. He looks at the note, he's like, huh? Then he put it, puts it down. Now, let me be very honest with you. Can I be honest? Yeah. You won't leave my church? Okay. I, I was sitting there with my friend and, you know, we sat there uh, on purpose because we wanted, and I was looking at him. I was waiting for one of those, like, who paid my bill, ah? Uh? Who paid my bill, ah? Uh? Pay, pay my bill. Then I'll, I'll sit there, then I can go, like, <laughs> I want to do that. I want to do that. But the man, you know, like, he took the note, he put it down, and then he left. He, di- he didn't do, like, the, who paid my bill, ah? Uh? And I was like, what? That's a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, I was robbed of this, like, joy that would have come from, like, just doing a good thing. And I was just, like, upset. And then I was like, man, I didn't get approved, didn't get affirmed. Then I'll be honest, you know, we went to school that day, and uh, we had a conversation. And then my friend just brought up, like, oh, yeah, uh, you were at the restaurant just now. How was your meal? Hoping that he said that, like, oh, yeah, someone actually really awesome paid for my meal. Then we can say, like, oh, it was us. But anyway... That was many years ago. Today, I'm a different person. <laughs> right? I was, I was robbed of that joy because I had an ulterior motive. I had an underlying reason for doing a good thing. Right? 
And secrecy actually deals with these hidden motives, these hidden desires in our hearts, right? Because we know that not just in our world, but in Christendom, there is a temptation that we all face to do the right things, but for all sorts of wrong reasons. Ulterior motives, to get ahead in life, to do better than others, to be more well-liked, you fill in the blanks. Now, I really, really, really don't like to use myself as an example, but I don't really have a lot of stories. I just have my own. Now I'm just going to use myself as an example. This is all hypothetical. Everybody say hypothetical. hypothetical. Brilliant. Some of you struggle, but hypothetical. <laughs> now, I'm up here teaching the way of Jesus, spiritual practices, disciplines. I'm up here teaching, and uh, this is a good thing. Do we agree this is a good thing? Yep. Yes? Yep. Andre is doing a good thing. Now, you really have no idea why I'm up here, do you, right? Some of you might have, like, you know, you think you might have an idea, you think you might have an insight. Uh, some of you, uh, but none of you are able to peer into the deep recesses of my soul, see my interior being my castle, and tell me why I'm actually up here. None of you all have that level of insight to my soul. Do you agree on that? Yes? You don't, know, you don't really know why I'm up here doing what I'm doing. Some of you might be very cynical. You'd be like, this Andre is like a cult scam kind of person waiting to steal my money, that kind. Some of you might have that idea. Maybe none of you, but, but you really don't know why I'm up here, right? I could be up here because I love Jesus. I love all of y'all. I love teaching His Word. And I want to contribute to human flourishing, to you thriving in the world. And this is my way of contributing to you, to God, to society, to the kingdom. This is my place on planet Earth. And I'm here to serve. I'm here to love you. I'm here to love God. That could be a reason. Right? But I also could be up here because this is my job. And having a wife is very expensive. Just, just kidding. Amy doesn't buy expensive things. Secrecy. 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 Shh. Mm, thank you. For this. No, but, but, but Amy, Amy's not like that. Not at all. But, but truthfully, right, I could be up here because like, Man, living in Singapore is very expensive and I need a job, right? And this is maybe the, the one or the only ones that I'm like, very well qualified for. I could be up here because this is my job and if I had a choice, uh, I wouldn't be up here. I would be like slacking off. I'll be like having someone else up to preach but because there's no one else, I have to do it. I could be up here because of that reason. Or worse, I could be up here because I want more followers. I want more fancy. I want to build a brand, a following. I want to write books. I want to publish. I want to launch my intergalactic global ministry. I want to like make a lot of money, that kind of deal. And this church is just a stepping stone to greater heights. I could be doing that. You wouldn't know. Some of you were cynical before, but now you're like, I knew it! I knew it! (laughs) I knew it! Or maybe it's, it's even less insidious than that. You know, like I could be up here teaching, trying to, wanting to communicate the simple truth of God's kingdom, but underlying I might have a motive for like, oh, I just want to sound really smart. I want to impress. I want to get your approval. I could have that motivation as well. My point is, it's not as though my motivations are 100% pure 100% of the time, right? I'm a mixed bag of emotions, of motivations, you know? Like, I wish I could say I was 100% number one. But every now and then, two, three, not three, two, four, might, might creep in, right? And I'm a mixed bag of motivations and desires. Now, before you judge me, how many of you go to work 
on Monday morning, 8 a.m., sit in the cubicle and it's like, I'm here for fl- human flourishing. I'm here to extend God's kingdom, his purpose, and uh, be a salt and light to the world. How many of you do that? None of y'all. Maybe Andrew. Shane. Yeah, yeah, Shane. Right. Shane, right? Maybe Shane. How many of you do that? What's the word then, right? You know, you... You'd be like, you know, one day you might be human flourishing, the next day you'll be like, stupid email, stupid boss, stupid world. <laughs> right. You know, because we are a mixed bag of motivations, right? We have ulterior motives. We have hidden desires. And secrecy actually deals with these hidden desires. They surface them so that we can deal with them. For me, being in ministry, being on a platform, I often have to ask myself, why am I doing this good deed thing? What, who am I doing for? And most of all, who am I trying to impress? And that's what Jesus is going after in Matthew 6. Yours and mine motivation. And the way Jesus proposes remedy our almost intuitive need to crave for the approval and validation of others is to realign our heart's motivation through the practice of secrecy. Are you with me? Dallas Willard, I promise, last one. He says this. One of the greatest fallacies of our faith and actually one of the greatest acts of unbelief is the thought that our spiritual acts and virtues need to be advertised to be known. The frenetic efforts of religious personages and groups to advertise and certify themselves is a stunning revelation of their lack of substance and faith. He goes on to say this, Secrecy rightly practiced enables us to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God, who lit our candles so that we could be the light of the world. Not so we could hide under a bushel. We allow him to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. Secrecy at its best teaches love and humility before God and others. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, a writer, he says this, all human beings have three lives, public, private, and secret. Public, private, and secret. We all live three lives or I would rather say three aspects of our lives. Now, the public life for most of us is about the mask that we wear. It's about the life that we curate for others to see. This is like what I want you to perceive, to think of me. This is what kind of impression I want to live on you. This is where we put out our very best so that people will be impressed with us, so that people will approve and affirm us. This is our public life. And now the private life, this might be like your group of five to six friends who kind of know you, know your strengths and weaknesses. They know some of uh, your, your failings. They know some of your issues. And uh, it's just a really tight group of friends, but you're not fully transparent and fully honest with them. You just need friends. And the last aspect of life is the secret life. Now, this is all those things that we want to hide, all those coping mechanisms, addictions that we have, all the parts of ourselves that we know if others actually knew about it. They wouldn't approve of us. And we think, you know, they would, that's when they would leave us. We'll be all alone. We'll be disqualify ourselves from relationships and from the call of God. And so our life is fragmented. Public is where we put the best image of ourselves. And our worst, we keep in secret. This is the way we live our lives. This is how, for the most part, human society works. But Jesus flips the script. He turns everything around. Jesus flips the script. For Jesus, you keep your best, your good deeds, your awesome Jesus-y stuff in secret. 
And in private, some of your friends might know some of the things you do. But in public, you literally put out the worst aspects of yourself through confession, through repentance, through sharing of your needs. For Jesus, for the gospel, for living the kingdom, the best parts of yourself are reserved for only you and God. And to live in community, to live in kingdom, we put out the worst versions of ourselves, all our failings, our weaknesses, and our needs, and watch how the love of community and the love of God can meet us in spite of that. That is what it means to live in the kingdom, to embrace a life of secrecy. Are you with me? I found that secrecy really is the bedrock of intimacy. To have any depth in your relationship is to have mutual exclusivity, a measure of secrecy that you share. There are aspects of me and parts of me that only Amy will see. There are things that I will... <laughs> there are things that I will do only for Amy. <laughs> I should rehearse these more often. But to have any depth in your relationship, right? Do we agree you need some kind of mutual exclusivity? You need to have some things that you only reserve for the person, right? And now the question for you is that between you and the Lord, your relationship with God, is there a depth in your relationship where some things are only done for Him and for His eyes only? Bob Sorge has this to say, one of the best kept secrets of our faith is the blessedness and joy of cultivating a secret life with God. We need to seek eternal rewards from God because they are far greater than the fleeting, enslaving, and unstable applause of the world. When we choose to live in the secret place, secrecy and have pure motives before the Lord, when human applause and recognition comes, they do sometimes. It is actually accidental. It is an unintended byproduct. It is never the goal of our actions. Alexander Pope has this brilliant line. He says this, do good by stealth and blush to find it fame. Joe Johnson has this to say, if you don't live by the praises of men, then you won't die by their criticisms. I often like to watch people receive praise in church because now I'm like, hey, good job. And then they go like, oh, not me, it's Jesus. And then I go, it wasn't that great. You know, it was, it was good, but it's not like Jesus level good. I thought I'm being very funny, but you know. <laughs> right, you know. So let's do a heart check, shall we? Let's do a heart check. Um, ask us a few questions, and this, I believe, will give you a, a good indicator of where you're at uh, in terms of your addiction to approval and uh, how well you practice secrecy. Two questions. Do you grumble when your actions are unnoticed or congratulated, when you're unrecognized and validated? Are you envious when others gain credit and you don't? Do you get irritated when you don't get your wish, even though you give a lot of money or serve often? Do you count the benefit to you before agreeing to serve or give? Now, I believe if you said yes to any one of these questions, I sure have. Then like me, you battle with what the Pharisees battle. And the remedy that Jesus, Jesus proposes is to cultivate a life of secrecy. Last couple of quotes. A. A. Calhoun, she says this, It is no secret that most of us do not believe in secrecy. Anonymous Anonymity is not our thing. Recognition, accolades, and the limelight are. We want people to know just how generous, smart, successful, and popular we are, but we don't want to appear to be a braggart, so we come up with subtle and socially approved ways of promoting ourselves and our image. <laughs> we give money to causes where our name gets out, 
we name drop about who we know, we let slip how and where we volunteer, every good deed we do sees the light of day, and every juicy secret we know comes out in our next conversation. She goes on to say, say this, secrecy is practicing the spirit of Christ, reflected in hiddenness, anonymity, the lack of display, and the holding of confidences. That is what it means to practice secrecy. Now, I have uh, some practices for you. Uh, now, this is going to go up on our notes, and we're going to learn how to practice secrecy together as a church community, but I'm just going to have it out there. A few practices, uh, people who have lived a life of secrecy have recommended that we practice. Serve someone without bringing attention to your service. Find an act of service to render without letting anyone know what you have done or why you have done it. Refrain from the compulsion to share everything you know. Abstain from revealing your good deeds, talents, and qualities. Uphold confidentiality in not sharing other people's secrets or sensitive information. Celebrate the achievements of others without bringing up your own. And then lastly, consecrate times of intimacy with God, taking moments alone with Him and speaking of them with no one else. A.A. Calhoun actually curated this list and she goes on to say that if you were to commit your life to practice this, here is the fruit that you would see. That you will be developing a secret place of intimacy with Jesus. You will learn how to maintain confidences. You will practice spiritual disciplines and secret freedom from the hunger for notoriety, fame, and recognition by keeping your achievements yourself. You will govern self-centered conversation. You will bear being misunderstood without seeking to justify yourself or rationalize your behavior. Now, that's a big one. You will live from peace rather than competing from attention, and you will receive praise and recognition well, and then moving on without needing to add any self-deprecating comments. Now, isn't that a life well lived? Isn't that a life that you want? I surely do. My point is this. Savor secrecy. Savor secrecy. Let it be a way for you to love God and show Him that He matters to you. What can you do for God that no one will know about? Go and do it. I've heard it said that practicing secrecy is like building a theater in your life where there's only one seat in the audience. A theater so small, where there's no room, no standing room. It's just one seat, one stage, where you live, perform, and do good works for an audience of one. It is to reserve the best parts of yourself for the audience of one. How many of you want that? C.S. Lewis uh, has this to say. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels, it will seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. In secrecy, we deny ourselves the applause of men in favor for the applause of God. In secrecy, we cast aside earthly acclaim for eternal rewards. And in secrecy, we affirm that the joy of our Father is far greater than any joy the world has to offer. And now that is the invitation to you and me to enter into a place of secrecy, into the theater an audience of one, to experience the joy of the Father that lasts for all eternity. Can we stand?
Amen, amen. You're doing good? Now, I, I say all this, you know, not as a person who, have, who has attained it or like I am like so far above the praising and blaming of men and I live so secure. No, man. Most Mondays, I, like, I'm insecure, Andre. I curl up on the couch and think about the good slash bad job I've done. You know, I think about all your opinions. And, and you know, I, I honestly, for the most part, live under the weight of the fear of men. And I, I want to do better. I want to be better. I want to live free from that temptation to crave for your applause, to be honest, and for the approval of others. And I don't know how many of you can relate this message you brought a share. Uh, that you might live uh, with that as a weight, as a burden, that uh, if you were to just take a stock take of a life right now, you would begin to recognize that many of the things you do, you say, the way you dress, is honestly uh, for someone else's admiration and approval. And you know, the, the Lord wants to free you from that enslavement, that you don't have to be enslaved by someone else's opinion, that you get to live free and you get to experience lasting joy, contentment, and fulfillment in His presence, that He is indeed enough. And so we're just going to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes and just stand in the presence of God. and uh, Just reflect on your own life. Reflect on where you are at, where your heart is. Maybe the Lord has already been speaking to you uh, throughout the course of this message. And just begin to ask the honest question. Am I living for the sake of others? Am I living to impress someone else just talk to him and ask him to reveal to you Lord search our hearts you know us you see the deep recesses of our